a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Produce Radio 102.7 FM at 1160 AM. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. It is great to be with you today. Uh, this week, uh, all eyes are on Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia for the G20 Interfaith Forum. Uh, this is an annual platform where diverse faith leaders and religious organizations and actors get together to collaborate on global issues regarding faith. Uh, and so many of the compelling issues of today. On Wednesday, Elder David A. Bednar, an apostle, member of the first, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, addressed uh, this annual gathering. And his uh, title for his address was Understanding Religion as Essential, Reflections on the COVID-19 Crisis and the Place of Religion. Uh, we're very pleased to be joined now by Elder Bednar. Uh, thanks for making time for us today. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. So this is such a uh, a vital issue, uh, especially in the age of this pandemic, uh, where so many things are, are happening so fast. Swift action by government, uh, often well-intentioned, uh, but many ramifications that uh, we don't always see at the outset. I know this is something that has really been on your mind and heart for, uh, for several months during this pandemic. Uh, give us a little bit of the background of, as to how you came to this as your focus for this G20 Interfaith Forum. Well, over the course of the past several months, uh, I've been trying to reflect on the lessons we can learn because of the constraints and restrictions that result from the COVID-19 virus. Uh, I think it's pretty natural for all of us to be unhappy with the restraint, but yet the restraint can teach us things that we would otherwise never learn. And so uh, you begin to see in a reaction to uh, some of the government restrictions, where do they come from, Uh, what's the rationale, and what can we learn going forward? My, my focus is not so much on what has happened in the past, but what do we learn that will help us as we move forward? Uh, and so much of, of what you've hit in that go forward is is centered really in this idea of how, uh, how they understand how these elected officials or governments understand religion uh, often impacts how all of those things will be done moving forward. If I can just give some examples, it's, it's just hard for me to understand. It's incomprehensible that a casino can be opened, but yet uh, with some appropriate modifications, there can't be some religious rights and services. Uh, and my, my, the sum and substance of my plea is, uh, if these are not just edicts, 
But there are ways to address both of the issues, to be safe, to protect people from the virus, and to be able to proceed with uh, religious uh, ceremonies and gatherings that are essential in the lives of billions of people on the earth. Uh, some people have tried to characterize this as, uh, well, you know, no matter what, we're just going to do what we want to do. That's not the point. Uh, if there's some cooperation and some accommodation, people of goodwill can find out how to solve these problems going forward uh, in a way that I think benefits both sides. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the way you have uh, sort of uh, debunked a little bit the the false choice of either it's it's either faith or, you know, following the law. Uh, but that, as you said, uh, the accommodation, the cooperation, creative solutions. Uh, and I loved especially that you included in that that line uh, respect, that respect really has to be the heart of this if we're ever going to get to the right kinds of solutions moving forward. I think it's very, very important for us to recognize uh, to know what we don't know. And uh, the only way you wade out of that situation is to talk with people who know some things that you don't know. So there are policy implications that uh, perhaps the religious community is not aware of, and there are some religious uh, issues that perhaps policymakers don't take into consideration as well. Uh, If we talk to each other about those kinds of issues, I think in most instances we're going to find out that there are ways to solve it that we don't identify if we're both just parked in our respective camps. Uh, I think that that kind of elevated dialogue is is such a a lacking element in so many of these conversations today. Uh, I want to go back for a minute to uh, really this idea of the centrality of religious faith to believers, uh, that it is this important, uh, like anything else, it's a dimension of diversity. It's a dimension of individual lives. Uh, tell us more about how that played into your, your thinking and, and what you delivered at the G20 Interfaith Forum. Well, I think it grows uh, very directly out of my experience traveling the world. Serving as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, uh, my responsibility is to travel the earth. And I've been in more than 100 nations And I have seen people of different religious backgrounds. I've had the opportunity to meet with faith leaders of almost every belief group on the planet. And uh, there's so much to learn from them. We disagree in our doctrine, but yet they love God. They want to to serve the members of their, their faith community. And to have that experience... Um some of the most joyful conversations I've had and some of the the tremendous things I've learned are have come in conversations with people that I have very little in common with and didn't know anything about. Now, on a, a recent trip to, uh, to Sudan, I met with some clerics, and we had the most delightful afternoon where they simply said, now tell us who you are and tell us what you believe. And then I would pose the same questions to them. And we found some areas of commonality that none of us would have anticipated, and we better understood the reasons for the differences that we had. Uh, that's a wonderful outcome. And so that's the the background and the context, I think, of where that comes from. Uh, I love that. And I think it's so important. We often talk about it's it's not about disagreeing less. It's about disagreeing better. 
And if you disagree better, you actually come to that learning, that understanding, uh, those magical moments that uh, that you just described. I may be very simple-minded, maybe even naive. I think it is possible to disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, but we live in a world where that doesn't seem to be an option uh, very much anymore. Yeah, And I'm not willing to give up on that. <laughs> That's good. We're counting on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the ob- observations from uh, Elder Bednar. Uh, this this phrase uh, that we, we need to be really aware of the fact that th- there's this false choice out there. That the false choice is it's either about safety and you are for safety uh, or you are for your ability to express your religious faith. Uh, those are compatible principles. Uh, and I think that was part of his plea and his message in his address yesterday was that, look, when we come together, we can we can transcend that us versus them, this versus that false choice that often drives so many conversations, uh, particularly in social media. You know, Elder Bednar is uh, is one of those people, he is uh, has many keen insights and gifts. Uh, one is his ability to be quick to observe. Uh, he's one of the most observant leaders I've ever seen. Uh, and I've seen him in multiple places around the world where while many are caught up in the moment of something, he might be a half step back, really laying, viewing the landscape and looking at what the conversations are and what is most important and getting to the essence, which is, of course, what this message to the G20 Interfaith Forum was really all about. And when we can get religious groups and we can get government groups to come together, we can always find out better solutions. Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. When we come back, more of my conversation with Elder David A. Bednar, member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. Uh, much more in a fascinating interview coming up here on KSL News Radio. Stay with us. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Utah's source for exclusive access and insights behind the news. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It is great to be with you today, and I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. If you're just joining us, uh, we've been uh, going through my interview with Elder David A. Bednar, a uh, member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, he addressed the G20 Interfaith Forum. This is an annual gathering that brings together religious leaders, policymakers from government, diverse faith actors, uh, all of those who come together to collaborate uh, around agendas and, and frameworks in terms of sustainable goals development, poverty, justice, uh, a host of other things. And I want to get back to my conversation uh, with Elder Bednar has uh, dealt with so many different people from so many different walks of life, and including government officials and leaders of other uh, faith groups. There's so much to learn from his his reflections, especially as it relates to what are the lessons to be learned 
from the coronavirus? How do we balance safety with the opportunity to exercise those first freedoms, especially the freedom of religion? It was interesting this uh, this past week, there was some new uh, research came out from Pew Research uh, called Lessons from the Pandemic. And it was very interesting. The vast majority of Americans believe that there there are lessons to be learned through the pandemic. And even the majority of them said that there may even be lessons from God uh, for everyone from this pandemic. Oh, I think the the lessons are, uh, there are so many that you can't even begin to count them. Let me just give one example. Since I can't travel now, I now Zoom all over the world. And uh, I sleep in my own bed every night, which I find to be a tremendous advantage. (laughs) But uh, I was in a gathering, not in person, but in a Zoom gathering with a number of uh, members of our church. And I asked them the question. I said, what is this like for you? Customarily, we would all be together in the congregation in a building. But we're separated now, and we're doing this by technology. What is this like for you? And one gentleman said, uh, Elder Bednar, uh, I've never missed a church meeting in my life. Uh, If you you told me I needed to be at a certain place for a gathering, I would be there. But as I'm growing older, it's harder to sit on those benches. And he said, I'm in my own home. I'm sitting in my office, and I have a member of the Quorum of the Twelve in my home. I never thought that would ever happen. That was an incredible learning for me, because for him, it was almost, even though it wasn't in person, it was a more personal experience. When I stand at a pulpit in one of our buildings, there may be 2,000 people in the room, and I can see the people on the first 10 or 15 rows and see their faces and see their reactions. On a Zoom screen, uh, I can see everybody on the front row as if they were on the front row. So what immediately appears to be a break from the past, and we can't do what we've always done, in some ways is better than it's ever been. Now that's just one lesson in terms of how the technology can enhance, not just detract from what we customarily have done. When you eliminate place and you eliminate time, which you can do via the technology, it opens up a range of options that you never would have thought of before. And I'm finding that in my ministry and in my work, is that I'm able to connect with a frequency and in ways that I never did before. That doesn't take the place of person to person, but it complements and expands it in ways I never otherwise would have anticipated. Yeah, I love that. That's great. In your, uh, you delivered a really what I think is a landmark uh, address back in June uh, to the BYU at the BYU Law School uh, on the Religious Liberty Conference that they hold there each year, and in that you you talked about a lot of the kind of the go forward pieces of that of uh, how as uh, President Russell M. Nelson often describes it as as linking and and locking arms, uh, you outlined to the members of the G20 Interfaith Forum today that religion can be a a vital and important partner uh, to governments and to community leaders in terms of, uh, as you described it, the the font of legitimacy and practical assistance in the time of crisis. Tell us more about that. Well, I just tried to give uh, a couple of examples 
uh, oftentimes in times of crisis, there is misinformation. And you'll, you'll have uh, religious leaders that will have credibility and be trustworthy among the members of their congregations. And so that becomes a source. If there's collaboration uh, between policymakers and governments and religious leaders, then that becomes a source of accurate information, not pushing an agenda, but just conveying accurate information and debunking uh, myths and rumors. Uh, so there's just a lot of things where within those religious communities, there can be very practical, positive consequences of, of collaboration instead of just uh, publishing edicts and uh, fostering distrust. Yeah, so vital. Uh, as we as we come full circle here, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity again to uh, to just share uh, with the audience and those uh, across the country and around the world uh, your your call uh, and uh, the things that allow you to to use your first freedoms uh, in the way that you often do as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for the Church of Jesus Christ. Well, I think uh, as a part of my message today, I talked about how for billions of people on the earth, uh, their religion is core to their identity. It defines who they are and what they are. And that is certainly the case for me. Uh, The doctrine that I have learned in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has shaped me. If there's anything of any worth in me, uh, it is the product of that doctrine and how it influences the way I think, the way I feel, what I do, and what I hope to become. And so when I said that uh, in a time of crisis, if there's a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding about the centrality of that faith in me or any other person of any other religious community, uh, it's, it's a diminishing of human dignity and identity. So... I don't have an agenda other than, in my message, both at BYU and the one today at the G20 Forum, is to highlight that for billions and billions of people on the earth, uh, to, to say that your religious belief and practice is non-essential just doesn't equate for me. That doesn't compute, because that's who I am, and I think there are, there are many, many people who have that same sense of identity growing out of their religious faith. Wonderful. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, understanding religion as essential, reflections on the COVID-19 crisis and the place of religion, uh, something everybody should check out and listen. Uh, This is important for individuals, uh, not just for faith communities, uh, but especially for government officials at every level of government uh, that these are things that are essential and uh, actually help to have humankind flourish and communities be strong. Elder Rednar, thanks so much for joining us today. Boyd, it's just a privilege to be able to spend a few minutes with you. Thank you for the invitation. You bet. That's my conversation with uh, Elder David A. Bednar of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, and so many wonderful lessons there. We'll post uh, his speech to the G20 Interfaith Forum on our website, and uh, you can read uh, all of the details there. I want to just get in one last thing that he said in his speech uh, to the Interfaith Forum, talking about the this important essence uh, of faith. He said, faith traditions are the incubators and shapers 
of family and community life, creating and sustaining the spiritual ties that link and bind people together. Religion transmits moral and social truths to the next generation. Can anything be more vital? Our faith is more than just important to our dignity as human beings. It is essential. I could not agree more. Check out more of that uh, on Deseret.com or on our website as well. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor of the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on KSL Inside Sources today. And as always, as you go out into the world today, see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.